Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Lighton. This is Open Source. Irresistible force meets immovable object disorder. The argument is that the push outward to the frontier that defined American history and character, although self-reliant wagon families heading west, the American knighthood of tough cowboys, our empire of freedom, as Jefferson put it, all that is crashing on President Trump's wall along our 2,000-mile border with Mexico. At the checkpoints, we know the collision is ugly. In the cruelty to children and families, it's grotesque. In American politics, it's explosive. But what if it cuts permanently into the ways we Americans see ourselves? On both sides of that unbuilt Trump border wall this hour, we're getting a miserable migration story with the Mexican writer Valeria Luiselli, and we'll get to the novel that John Lanchester drew out of his own bad dream about a sky-high wall encircling what's left of England. But the American historian Greg Grandin strikes the keynote from his new book about us. It's titled The End of the Myth. It's a modern revision of the idea that the frontier made us who we are. Well, the myth in the book is the myth of expansion or the myth of the frontier. There's really two things at play. The, the fact of expansion, the social experience of expansion, the reality that the United States, even before it was founded as an independent republic, had expansion built into its premise, its move west from the British Isles across the Atlantic to the New World settlement and then west across the Appalachia and Trans-Mississippi onward to the Pacific. But then there was a way that that movement was ideologized, was turned into a myth. And there's different components of it. But as you mentioned, one of the most important consolidated and synthesizes was Frederick Jackson Turner at the end of the 19th century, the late 1800s, delivered a paper in Chicago called The Significance of the Frontier in American History. And in it, he, he argued against a kind of establishment Brahmin, Boston Brahmin way of thinking about that everything that is good about the United States was exported from Europe. Turner argued that everything that was good about the United States was created in the New World, particularly on the frontier. The experience of settlement itself, right? it was a kind of machine for creating what we think of as American individualism and American democracy and a unique sense of political equality. Rugged individualism, yeah. Greg Grandin. It was a tough trial. It made people different. It was rugged individualism, and for Turner, for Turner, it was a kind of, there was also a little bit of mutualism and cooperation that went along with it. It yeah. was, a, he, you know, he was writing at the end of the 1800s when the frontier was actually declared closed, the landed frontier, and and, and Turner was a kind of mild progressive. He believed that uh, there was a certain kind of cooperation and mutualism that was also created on the frontier, but yes, there was a a kind of rugged individualism in its most raw form, the myth of the frontier, that of, of self-sufficiency, of innovation, of moving out into the future, moving out into the world. The frontier was the civilizational zone, the place where right. 
civilization met met savagery, the line between white settlement and indigenous settlement. You remind me that it's everywhere in our history, including my man Emerson. One of my favorite essays, Circles, he says we are capable of innumerable expansions. And he says when you get into trouble of one sort or another, the answer is always to draw a new circle. But keep going. John Kennedy, of course, the new frontier. I think Ronald Reagan, I heard him say, covering him many, many times, he would say, well... God put this great continent between the two oceans for a reason. The reason that he was making something new called an American. But it's where American exceptionalism comes from, too. We've been through something that most countries have never been. Yeah, and the point is that exactly that, the idea of being able to pull up stakes and move on, whether actually over the landed frontier or or psychically or economically or culturally or politically. The point is that the United States, what is exceptional about the United States is that its ability to use the promise of expansion, the promise of limitlessness, of ceaselessness to organize domestic politics, to respond to social movements, to break up extremism. This is what one of the things that that makes the United States exceptional in actuality, but also creates the myth of exceptionalism, right? It, it feeds off of each other, the social experience and the ideology. And one of the things that is unique about the United States is the constant ability to use the promise of limitless growth hmm. to respond to domestic crises. The U.S. for centuries has deferred and deflected and vented outward its contradictions. And with Trump, we've hit the end of the road. And hence, the wall has substituted for the frontier as the as the organizing myth or the organizing symbol of national identity. We got to get to where he's taking us. But quick question, could you have written this book with the energy and the point that it has, if Donald Trump had not fixed on the wall to make himself president? No, it's exactly that wall. You know, on June 15th, 2016, when he descended his elevator in his Trump Tower to announce for the presidency and he promised to build a great, great wall, that image, that pledge, that campaign promise came to kind of capture and crystallize and synthesize a number of different racist and nativist ideas, but in a very dramatic way. And and I think the power of this symbol is because it taps into this larger myth, this myth of, of the frontier, and, and, and stands it on its head. It inverts it in some ways. I mean, the power of Trump, whether we like it or not, is that he, um, he's able to draw on these deep currents of nativism that's inherent in what we would call settler colonialism, which were always present, even at the height of the frontier myth. I mean, that's the power of the frontier myth, right, is that it keeps the racism subdued or submerged or sublimated or at least relegates it to the margins. Trump draws it out and turns it into spectacle, and that's what the wall does. I was just going to say the racism, the nativism, even the predatory preemption of the land was left out in the sort of shined-up myth. But meantime... Between the closing of the frontier, so to speak, and Trump's wall, a whole lot of things had happened. I mean, the frontier had been extended by JFK, for example, to Vietnam. 
by Barack Obama, you could say, to Afghanistan and Elon Musk into God knows outer space. Yeah, it's gone. It's gone everywhere. Some people said, well, Reagan's reining it in. But what was Reagan doing to that myth? No, well, I mean, look, the book starts in the in the 1700s. The book is a, is a long, long history and, and, and there's lots of twists and turns. And, uh, and it covers a lot of ground through the through the Indian removal, through the Mexican-American War, through the Civil War, through Vietnam onward, through the New Deal and, and Vietnam. Reagan kind of restores the myth of the frontier after after the kind of collapse of the New Deal coalition. But Reagan is in some ways a kind of rehabilitates the myth of limitlessness. The, there are no limits to growth. There is no crisis of scarcity. And Reagan was in some ways rebuilding and restoring the myth after the crisis of Vietnam, the crisis of the 1970s, the spike in oil prices, all of these things which suggested that the U.S. had hit limits in the 1970s. Reagan's response was to kind of tap into this this larger and longstanding myth of ceaselessness, of, of almost of immortality, if, if you like, of infinity. That project, that the Reagan's restoration, post-Vietnam restoration, which continues under George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton and George W. Bush, comes crashing down with, well, today is the anniversary of the, actually today's a very apt day to have this conversation. It's the, it's the 16th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq, you know, a war that I take to be a kind of extension and exhaustion of, of many of the premises of a certain kind of millenarian messianic manifest destiny. And so there was the, there's the war in Iraq, which was one wall that the U.S. hit. There was the, the economic collapse of, of 2008 and the perverse recovery that has revealed a startling amount of social immobility and social inequality. And then the larger thing that hovers over this, of course, is climate crisis and that the world stands on the precipice of an ecological collapse. So Trumpism is a response to all of those things and, and the wall. Trump is what happens when the frontier closes, when the empire ends, when all of the extremism that had previously been channeled outward get turned inward. So it, Trump isn't the source of the this new myth of the wall. He's in some ways the kind of articulator of it, the, the way Reagan was a restored frontier. I'm glad you put it in terms of symbols, ideas, myths. It's all very foggy and fluid and terribly unclear and often contradictory. Trump himself, for example, is there any more unfrontiersy kind of guy? He's, if anything, just the opposite, the effete Manhattan luxury tower kind of person. At the same time, I want to give him some credit for feeling the American public impatience with the overextensions of the frontier before him. You say it hit its real wall in Iraq, a war that never should have happened. Barack Obama took it even further in Afghanistan. The war is still going on. How far from domestic American interests can a place be except Afghanistan? And Trump is realizing with an acute sense of both fear and pain in the American body politic. He's saying, no, let's shore up this place. And what better crazy symbol than a wall? An unbelievably un-American icon, but it speaks to his point. Trump does seem to be the least frontier-like president, 
But there's something about that frontier myth is that it actually tapped into a certain certain truth. You know, Donald Trump's German grandfather, Frederick, kind of lived the frontier myth. He escaped an unhealthy German youth for uh, New York in 1885. And then he followed the mining boom west to Seattle and then up to Alaska. And then he returned home with seed money for property on Jamaica Avenue in, in Queens. So even somebody as unfrontier-like as Trump, you kind of scratch the surface and the family history is actually founded on, on something that would be very recognizable to Frederick Jackson Turner. Coming up, Greg Grandin has the last word, and it may surprise you, on Donald Trump and American Empire. And then Valeria Lucelli takes us across the border, another sort of shock. This is Open Source. Our guest, Greg Grandin, has won the big literary prizes, Bancroft and Beveridge, and he's been a Pulitzer finalist for his books on American empire. In his new one about a sort of frontier fatigue in our thinking, the idea of empire is slipping too. From the days when Teddy Roosevelt, supporting righteous war for the Philippines, said the U.S. could never play the part of China, as he said, and be content to rot by inches in ignoble ease within our borders. Exactly. I mean, that's the point. The United States derives moral meaning from expansion, right? So expansion is held up not just as a way of gaining access to resources, of expanding a a kind of economy that, that might provide material benefit for the United States, but the idea of moving out in the world, whether it be through markets and trade treaties like NAFTA, or whether it be wars. Theodore Roosevelt there was talking about the War of 1898 when the U.S. moved into the Philippines and annexed the Philippines. And the idea is that expansion would provide civic renewal domestically. Greg, I wondered reading your book, why don't we Americans have a better word for restraint touching on our place in the world? You challenge American projection of force around the world, and you're called an isolationist. And a wall surely is a symbol. But why does it take that extreme and un-American a metaphor to express, we've got to correct our place in the cosmos? There is no ascendant political coalition in the United States that, that hasn't been dependent on expansion in one form or another, that hasn't used foreign policy as a way of establishing hegemony, not over other people's, also other peoples, but but domestically within this country. There's no progressive moment in the United States that hasn't been linked to expansion. The extension of the vote to white working class was dependent on Indian removal. The ending of chattel slavery was predicated on also expanding and pacification of, of the West. The progressive movement in the 1890s and the early 20th century was dependent on the War of 1898. Some suffragists during World War I traded their support for the war in exchange for Wilson's support for the vote for women, as did some reformed trade unionists for labor reform. Even the New Deal, which is probably the closest we've come to some kind of social democratic reckoning and honest confrontation with the reality of, of inequality, was dependent on opening overseas markets and creating a new kind of corporate bloc that would support the domestic reforms of the New Deal order. There is no America without expansion. This is the paradox and this is the challenge of whatever reform movement that arises out of 
the current crisis and the current catastrophe, how to achieve reform, whether it be a Green New Deal or whether it be a confrontation with inequality or whether it be a kind of dismantling of the military industrial conflicts that isn't purchased on the back of an expansion of national power. It's never happened before in this country. And this is this is one of the things that mark the beginning of a new moment, the move into uncharted territory. Greg Grander, what do you do with a country that has expansion, unlimited expansion built into its DNA? The frontier closed a century ago, but the myth of unlimited expansion seems to be indestructible. It's true. There are historical moments that one could look to for lesson. So in the 1930s, after the collapse of, of Wall Street and the, and the contraction of the Great Depression, a whole new generation of intellectuals and policymakers, they recognize limits, right? They use the frontier thesis and theory as a way of explaining why a country that had previously did very little regulating and intervening in the economy now had to regulate quite a deal. FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, for instance, was a student of Frederick Jackson Turner at Harvard. He took Turner's class at Harvard. And he often used a kind of five-minute presses of the frontier thesis to explain the crisis, you know, to talk about the why uh, in the past the United States had been able to kind of roll over crises and move on because people weren't completely subordinated and subjugated to the market. And then he would just say with a wave of a hand, but those days are gone. And he used a kind of frontier thesis as a way to put forward a new ethos of social citizenship and other new dealers as well. They basically began affixing the preface social to all of these fraternarian categories, social individualism, social rights, social citizenship, social democracy. They put forward a kind of new ethics of social citizenship and social rights that at the time was a break with American notions of, to go back to where we began, rugged individualism. And in many ways, that foundation, though much of the New Deal has been undermined and rolled back, is still very much present in political debate and political discourse. And I think we see it with the Green New Deal and the rise of a kind of social democratic left within the Democratic Party. Greg Grandin, is it fair, is it wise to see Donald Trump as the villain in this turned around story? There's a brutality that he is accountable for that is personal and villainous without doubt. But I think that it also, he represents the larger exhaustion of, of a political order that is in crisis. I mean, there's two ways of thinking about Donald Trump, right? One is that he is completely exceptional to United States history, that he is unprecedented, that his form of extremism and nativism, which we've seen, but we've only seen at the margins, represent an interruption in a larger history of tolerance and openness and procedural democracy. Or you could see him as the fulfillment of the darkest impulses of the United States' settler colonial history, a racism that was always present, an extremism that was that was always on the verge of manifesting itself. The way you get out of that either-or debate, he's a culmination or exceptional, is by looking at the longer history of expansion and the ways in which expansion was able to dilute that extremism and marginalize it. And now that expansion isn't an option, 
now that the United States has hit the limit, so to speak, economically, militarily, and ecologically, Trumpism is what happens. Trump is what happens when the empire ends. Greg Grandin's teaching life moves this summer from New York University to Yale. His new book is The End of the Myth, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America. Valeria Luiselli is suddenly the literary authority on Mexico, inside and out. Father, a Mexican diplomat, mother, a Zapata movement activist. Valeria is a New Yorker now in her 30s, and she's lived and written it all, harrowing journalism from U.S. immigration centers and a shape-shifting new novel of many levels inside the minds of children, families, on the road, and on the run. It's called Lost Children Archive, earning wow reviews. In the Coolidge Corner Theater for the Brookline Booksmith, I asked Valeria Luiselli first just to set us over the border into Mexico this past year of La Bestia and the immigration surge. The violence in Central America since early 2000s and working up towards 2014 just became unnarratable, uninhabitable, never before lived and seen. And the amount of uh, women raped by the gangs, passed around from gang member to gang member. This is where I have placed most of my attention, the amount of kids being recruited to do difficult and dangerous jobs for gang members. It's comparable to recruitment for child soldiers, right? A seven-year-old who needs to do something very, very dangerous, pass drugs from one place to the other, or stand in a corner with a gun, or kill another. So kids started fleeing in mass, of course, having seen the gangs torture their family members or kill their family members when they resist recruitment or just horrified and afraid for their lives. So there has been a diaspora of children, basically. Children as young as toddlers, but mostly in teenage years, which is when kids are most vulnerable to to gang recruitment. And in 2014... Here, a crisis was declared, not a crisis on the basis of the situations that these kids were fleeing from, really, but the crisis on the basis of the sudden surge of arrivals and the institutional response or the lack of capacity for an institutional response to that surge. Kids, when they cross Mexico, ride aboard La Bestia. It's a very dangerous ride. Um, Can you describe this train? Who's driving it? Who's watching it? It's a cargo. It's a cargo train, and so people ride on top of the cars and not inside. It's really many trains. It's three different routes of trains. Well, the routes start in Chiapas in southern Mexico and work their way up uh, toward the Mexico-U.S. border. Along the way, there are military posts, but also a lot of narco cartel-controlled territory, as well as municipal police that are not necessarily there to help but to extort. So it's a ride in which it would seem that every single person, with some exceptions, is there to further torture people who are already fleeing circumstances of unspeakable violence. And the amount of people disappeared in Mexico from Central America is The number a few years ago was 150,000 disappeared people, people who we just don't know where they are. But it's probably higher, and it's also... Accountability is not something that 
past Mexican administrations have have been very good at. And what what is happening is that more and more mass graves have been found in Mexico. And it is suspected that most of those people are undocumented uh, Central Americans. The people that do make it, when they finally make it, to the U.S., are put immediately in something called the icebox. People call it in Spanish, colloquially, the hielera, because it is like a kind of human refrigerator. It's a, a space of incarceration at extremely low temperatures, where people are not supposed to be left for more than 72 hours, but they often are. There, they're given vaccinations, often too much and too many. So kids, there's been many cases of kids who have had to uh, be taken to emergency rooms because they were given adult doses of hepatitis C vaccinations, for example, or so many vaccinations that, that they react, that their body reacts to, to the medical, institutional, legalized violence of the arrival. Now there's also a place called La Perrera, the dog pound, where kids and mothers and fathers are taken during separation. So people are separated, put in perreras. And from there, if they are not deported back, they're taken to a shelter, another space of incarceration, but usually run by ORR, which is Office of Refugee Resettlement, instead of ICE. So it's a little bit more humane, but not entirely so. I want to ask you a question about that and the, the caravan that surfaced in the campaign last year. It's a question not about Trump and how he manipulates it, but about us. How did he get away with uh, dispatching the army there as if it were a military threat? I'd love to see it from the other side of the border. Why is the United States falling for this and not, not recognizing it as any of those things you're talking about in response to a crisis that's completely misunderstood here? I, I think that beyond Trump one fundamental issue that would have to change uh, so that immigration is not treated as a question of, of uh, national security, but as it is and has been always before 9-11, was always, as an economic issue, right? Immigration used to be dealt with by the Department of Treasury and not by, well, Homeland Security didn't even exist, ICE didn't exist until, until 9-11, right? It was something that would have to change is, I mean, there's an underlying racism in all of this. There's a, a racism against black and brown people in this country that many don't share, but that many unfortunately do. And the feeling of being invaded by the Hispanic presence and indigenous, most of the migrants and refugees from Central America are indigenous or mestizo people. Uh, so the, the country resists that. Uh, I think there's a sensation of invasion, right? A, a threat to white peace and white values. And America, as it is really pushing to see itself as an Anglo-Saxon white country, which it is not and will not be anymore. It's the natural course of history for the U.S. It is that it becomes a much more diverse and multiple and complex layered country, which it already is, right? It always mystifies me, for example, that this is the second largest Spanish-speaking country in the world, mm. just after Mexico. It's much larger in its Hispanicity than Spain or Colombia or Argentina. It is, by all means, also a Hispanic country. It's a, a country where we speak English, and 70 million people speak Spanish. Yet it's very hard for us to think of the U.S. as a Hispanic country, 
too, right? It's the feeling is that the Hispanic portion of it is somehow like a foreign incrustation, something kind of always foreign, always from outside, right? The very origins of this country are also Hispanic, among other things. So I think a deeper change in the way we narrate the foundational myths of the U.S. to onto ourselves and onto the new generations. Like, what what narratives do we pass on to the right. new generations? How do kids or just younger people listen to observe this crazy world around us? And what narrative will they thread with the elements that we have? Um, There's so much going on in this novel. It's an observation of a marriage. It's a road trip. It's there's an incredible uh, mind reading of children, 10 and 5, boy and girl. But there's also matters of form and feeling in this book that are strikingly fresh and wonderful. I'd love you to talk in how the children in the car become lost themselves. Thinking about how many children get lost right now, children who are migrating here and seeking asylum along the way, or within the institutions of the U.S., and they go by unaccounted for, and where is our capacity to, to treat that as with the seriousness that it entails, right? So reenactment is either this very bizarre, crazy cultural practice, right? As a Mexican here, when I learned the, uh, of the amount of historical reenactments that exist here, I, I got a little bit freaked out. Um, and, um, you mean conquered Lexington, Revolutionary War? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. And yeah, Gettysburg, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, um, yeah. from a battle where 50,000 people lost their lives to the most unimportant gun struggle between two cowboys in, <laughs> somewhere in Arizona. And uh, I ended up going to some reenactments, partly for research purposes, partly because of my children, uh, in, in Arizona and New Mexico. And in, in Tombstone, Arizona, we watched some gunfight between Doc Holliday, Billy the Kid, Wyatt Earp, in this corral. What was interesting, though, is that once you left the corral, you realized that there were Billy the Kids and Doc Holliday's everywhere in town, doing different reenactments of different gunfights. Anyway, so I started thinking about reenactment as a culture, as a way of, of mapping history in and out, who gets reenacted, who are the protagonists of reenactment. Um, we ended up doing one of those cheesy, bad taste family portraits in sepia with like the costumes of the epoch. And we got a menu so that we could choose who we wanted to be. So you could be Doc Holiday or Billy the Kid, or you could be an outlaw Mexican or a Native American. <laughs> so... Um, the, the philosophy behind reenactment is shared. It's a, a little bit less sophisticated than history books, but not so, not so much less sophisticated, right? At the end, it's, it's a similar philosophy of who gets to have a name in history and who gets to play a part in it. Lost Children Archive is Valeria Lucelli's new novel, a mold-breaking new classic in the New York Times headline, with a child's stream of narrative, one run-on sentence that'll hold you breathless through 20 pages. Coming up, history, fantasy, fiction, and more in John Lanchester's English version titled The Wall. This is Open Source. 
John Lanchester is a great star of the London Review of Books. He can write memorably about almost anything, fact, fiction, finance, Facebook, among other things. He turned the construction of the London subway system after the 1850s into a small epic about advanced technology, financial daring, and social engineering at a scale that only China would consider for its cities today. But then he wrote his neo-Dickensian novel, Capital, about the social transformation of London today in a whirlwind of money. And after that, a very long and prescient diagnosis of the moral blemishes surfacing in social media. From there, now, to a compact, bone-chilling dystopia called The Wall, set on the lonely ramparts of a giant fortification all around the borders of England. English people are drafted to serve two-year turns as defenders atop the wall, which was built in response to a surge of immigrants, but even worse to the rising of ocean waters after a catastrophic shift in climate. I didn't think of it as dystopia. I mean, it had an odd trajectory for me. It started life as a dream. I was part of the way through a different novel and began to have a recurring dream about someone standing, standing guard on a wall on his own at night in the cold and in the dark with the water on the other side. It happened over a series of nights. I think, well, what, who is he? Was really the, and then I realised that actually that's the wrong question, that the, the relevant question was actually what's that world? What world is he living in? It felt like not quite our world. And I realised that what I was imagining, really, I was imagining a world after catastrophic climate change. And that was the sort of germ of it for me. This, um, And yeah, I've never had a book come in that way before and don't expect to ever again um, but it was a sort of dream that had an image in it and the image turned into a person and that turned into a world and then the story in a sense unfolds the world around him the story of the novel is in a sense a kind of unwrapping or explication of what what had happened to the world right it is dreamlike at the same time it's incredibly vivid about our time i kept thinking of israel's wall the perfect type of a diaspora people, a global people, coming in behind a wall and fortifying it. Equally strange, Trump's fixation on a wall. This continental nation of incredible variety, the nation of nations, falling in love with a wall or being told to fall in love with a wall. Do we know how it came to this? I mean, one of the odd things about modern history, we are living in a great era of wall building that... More than half of all the walls built since the end of the Second World War have been built this century. You mentioned the wall between Israel and Palestine. There's a huge wall between India and Pakistan. Iraq is walled off from all its neighbours on all sides, which is, I think, Syria, Kuwait. Got a border with Lebanon, border with Iran, all walled around that. There's a huge wall in, in the Sahara Desert between Morocco and Western Sahara. And, you know, these are shiny, new, high-tech walls mm. being built even as we speak we're living through this great epoch of putting up more barriers you know if we were reading about it in tacitus you know if we were reading about it with that degree of historical perspective it would look like we've been through a period of openness and internationalism and barriers coming down and we are now having a kind of reaction in in terms of you know the barriers going up again and nations turning inward and it's also darker than turning inward it's also seeing the people on the doorstep as somehow you know inherently threatening and inherently alien is it a universal disease or do we get the 
the rise and fall from England? I think it's a thing that's happening across the developed world. It comes in different inflections. I mean, I can be a bit impertinent to talk about American politics as an outsider, but well, go for I, it. I noticed one of the things that is very troubling about the war is that it, for lots of Americans, contradicts the idea of what Americanness is because America is an immigrant country. It is built by people who've often fled, often in desperation, other parts of the world. So, you know, Trump presents this as this thing about security and pragmatism, but actually it contradicts what America is. It's a profound denial and betrayal of the whole idea of America. Not only the immigrant nation, the, the Melville crew of the Pequod, which was from 40 different nations, we were also taught it was an anti-imperial nation. We won independence from Britain. We thought that was in our DNA. But where did it go? There's been that long strand, though, of empire in the classic form being replaced by a kind of economic version of it, where you don't need to conquer the world as long as you can ensure certain kinds of patterns of trade and you can get raw materials from abroad and then sell them the finished goods. In a sense, that's what empire was for. You know, Britain would get cheap rubber from Malaysia, turn it into tires and sell it back to the Malaysians. That pattern in a kind of classic Marxist analysis is in a way you don't need it anymore if you can reproduce it economically without the relations of force and domination being completely obvious. You've got all the good bits of empire without needing the rest of it. But I think that that can then slide into the notion of projecting force, being the world's policeman, being a kind of global hegemon in a direct mm. way. Trump's thing is complicated in respect of that because he's also while being an America firster and a liar and a fantasist. But he's also the first president in a long time to opt out of that sort of in that international version of American power too. You know, the withdrawal from projecting American force in lots of places is, is quite strange and striking. Mm. His model is all about pull out the drawbridge, build the wall, and we'll be more secure that way instead of projecting force. The things he said about uh, wheels are like walls, they're medieval. You know, walls just work. Right. Now, the thing about that is about as wrong as it's possible to be as a fact about human history, because he's 5,000 years out, um, where the first wall's from 8,000 BC, first wheel's 3,000 BC. So <laughs> straight F if he's doing Archaeology 101. But he does latch onto that thing about the idea of a wall as something that just works. He has latched onto a kind of archetypal imaginative power of the idea that wall along the border, people might think it's ridiculous, stupid, un impractical, unfeasible, all those things, but they immediately can sort of picture it and imagine it and know what, know what he mm. means. You wrote a very important article for me about the inequality crisis becoming a global phenomenon. You said it, the global economy had become a kind of engine of separating people in social groups, but especially in terms of their wealth. Then came the Brexit vote. I thought, wait a sec, maybe they just read your, your analysis that this thing was not working. I think the referendum was a mistake. I think calling it was a mistake because I think asking people, are you happy? And people are going to say no. A yes-no referendum on anything with the government telling you to vote yes is going to come back no just because it becomes a lightning rod. Mm. other sorts of things. And that's the thing that is so frustrating and dismaying about it, is that all the problems, all the things that fed it, are at best left intact and very likely 
for a number of reasons, are very likely to end up being significantly worse. I keep wondering why the economic problem wasn't recognized as an economic problem. A real failure of equitable distribution of the benefits of modern industry. It seems to me the fundamental grievance is still that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer, and that that's the driving force in this whole disruption, more than social exclusion or xenophobia or racism or any kind of sentiment. It's, it's the dollars and cents of a machine that doesn't work well. I think that's right. I think all those other things are made worse by economic exclusion because yes. people start to blame, you know, there are 10,000 new immigrants in your town and one of the big employers closes and you can't find work for yourself and it's very easy to make a causal link. Therefore, mm-hmm. the immigrants took the jobs. And those sort of xenophobic, nationalistic things are made much worse when you have increasing economic inequality because people look for people to blame. And they very often blame the people who aren't like them. I've seen thoughtful Tories, thoughtful Conservatives say that the diagnosis is, is very clear. The diagnosis is, as you say, inequitable distribution. And in Britain, it's very geographic. You have parts of the country that are winning, the southeast, the big cities. Yes things linked to the knowledge economy. And you have parts that are losing and falling behind, the deindustrializing parts of it. And, and oddly enough, we have this big thing about the coasts, that a lot of people retire to the coast and you know, they don't have much industry. The labor's very seasonal and they're from quite poor and falling behind. And disproportionately whiter, older, less educated, which is one of the clear demographic groups that feels really angry about the whole, the whole shift and disproportionately voted for Brexit. John Lanchester, can you explain what happened to British politics? And not just right, left, but incompetence, flailing. Ellen Barry of the New York Times says they've just run out of metaphors, cliches, for a system that isn't working, an embarrassment. How do you explain it? Well, I think incompetence accounts for a lot of it. Well, what's a, where does a referendum feature in that? What, you know, what's the Constitution have to say about referendums? I can tell you the answer. Nothing. <laughs> I mean, they have no legal status. It has no constitutional status. Nobody knows, from just a sort of legal, technical point of view, nobody knows what it is. It's not like California, where a referendum has the binding force of law. It's, it's you know, in principle, it's sort of advisory referendum. But what mm. does that mean? It was a really dumb idea to start with, and it was an accident to start with. And it was an accident really particularly deeply linked to David Cameron's character. He's a sort of lazy, upper-class person who has a kind of entitled overconfidence. And he'd won referendums on the electoral system, Hmm. on proportional referendum. He'd won referendum on Scotland. He'd won an election he didn't think he was going to win. And he just thought, well, you know, I, I know, I know how to do this. You know, trust me, I've got this. And didn't appreciate the extent of the the feeling of anger and exclusion and left behind, how deep that was running in large parts of the country. Come back to the novel. Something's ending here, John Lanchester. What is it? Well, in the world with that level of catastrophic climate change, four degrees Celsius, eight to nine degrees Fahrenheit of, of warming, and if you look at the maps of what the world looks like after that, it's human civilization as we know it is ending if we let it get to that point. How close are we? Well, we don't know, because it's a sort of fan-like range of outcomes. It's a range of probabilities 
for where we could go. We could get lucky because we don't know what happens. It's called climate sensitivity. If you double the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, we don't know for sure what that does to the temperature. We're on course to double it, but we don't know what that's going to do to the temperature. And we might get lucky that it raises it less than scientists think. It's at the lower end of the projections. Uh, Or we might get really unlucky and it may be right at the top end in which case we'd get to a humanly uninhabitable version of our planet really quite fast. We don't know. The version I imagine in the book is one where over a period of decades, you know, we've had about four degrees of warming and, you know, the sea levels have risen, large parts of the planet are uninhabitable and, you know, millions and millions of people have been displaced and are fleeing. And I think we have a moral obligation not to get to that point. Mm. What's the call to artists, musicians, poets... Writers, novelists. I'll tell you what I felt, because I've sort of tried to keep up with the reading on the climate stuff. It's quite hard to do, though, because it's so grim and it's so all-encompassing planetary-wide destruction is a difficult topic to face. It's difficult to think about. I mean, it's that thing that La Rochefoucauld said, that death, like the sun, cannot be contemplated directly. I think climate change is a bit like that. It's hard to look, look straight at it. And I felt that telling stories about it, telling a story about it, trying to imagine it in a different way could make it thinkable, make it something we can think about. Because I think at the moment the sense that it's huge and all-encompassing and everywhere and terrifying is an incentive to despair, and despair is an incentive to inaction. That, you know, there's this cycle of, it's too much, I can't think about it, there's nothing we can do, therefore let's not do anything. And I think perhaps, until you mentioned a call to artists, and so on, I think maybe the call is to try and find ways of making it thinkable about, because thinking about it leads to finding out about it, and the evidence is, you know, what the science says is that we can act, we, we can change things, this is a moment of hope. It's maybe the last moment of hope, the last moment we can act. And hope is a kind of obligation at the moment. What do you suppose a reader of this compelling book is going to think and do at the end, thinking of and his girl on this barren rock with Shakespeare and an oil lamp to console them for a moment. What I was hoping was that, you know, the thing James Baldwin said was that the main way writers can change the world is by changing the way we look at the world. And I was hoping to have some effect on people's sense of where we're heading. If it feels important to me, this thing about making it thinkable, making it imaginable as an important stepping stone to get people to accept what we're doing, accept the course we're on, and try and avert it. My main ambition for the book is to, to try and prevent it from coming about, in a sense, by imagining it. This is what this would be like. Are we sure this is what we want to do? That's the road we're on. Yeah. I'm not saying it's the future, but it's definitely a future. It's a possible future, and it's one we can avert. John Lanchester read for us a bit of the reckoning scene when his youngish narrator, John Cavanaugh, on the lookout for someone to blame for the end of the world, goes home briefly to visit his parents. This is a passage where my uh, main character, Joseph Cavanaugh, who begins his two-year tour of duty on the wall at the opening of the novel, and uh, the novel's told by him, and it describes his experiences as a defender, which is the name of the people who guard the wall, for a compulsory two-year term, during which 
Um, if one of the others, as they're called, gets over the wall in the course of their tour of duty, the defenders are put to sea and they become an other themselves. And Cavan has just spent his first two weeks tour of duty and he's gone home for two weeks to visit his parents. None of us can talk to our parents. By us, I mean my generation, people born after the change. You know that thing where you break up with someone and say, it's not you, it's me. This is the opposite. It's not us, it's them. Everyone knows what the problem is. The diagnosis isn't hard. The diagnosis isn't even controversial. It's guilt, mass guilt, generational guilt. The olds feel they irretrievably screwed up the world, then allowed us to be born into it. You know what? It's true. That's exactly what they did. They know it. We know it. Everybody knows it. To make things worse, the olds didn't do time on the wall because there was no wall, because there'd been no change, so the wall wasn't needed. This means that the single most important and formative experience in the lives of my generation, the big thing we all have in common, is something about which the olds have exactly no clue. The life advice, the knowing better, the back-in-our-day wisdom, which was apparently a big part of the whole deal between parents and children, just doesn't work. Want to put me straight about what I'm doing wrong in my life, Grandad? No thanks. Why don't you travel back in time and unscrew up the world and then travel back here and maybe then we can talk? John Lanchester's new novel is titled The Wall. Thank you, John Lanchester and Valeria Luiselli and Greg Grandin. There's lots more conversation on our website at radioopensource.org. We'd love to hear from you. And while you're up, think of leaving a donation for the hardest working team in radio. We depend on listeners to support our work. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, Rebecca Panovka, the artist Susan Coyne. George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath defends our wall. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time on Open Source. 